Welcome to the official SASTA podcast brought to you by myself, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC and the godfather of SASTA himself, Jason Lemkin. Now, if this is your first episode, this is the show that takes you inside the world of all things SAS to reveal the tips, tactics and strategies of the world's best operators and investors in the SaaS space. And today is no different as I'm delighted to be joined by one of the world's leading SaaS investors, joining me in the form of Doug Pepper. Doug was recently announced partner at Shasta Ventures, moving from Interwest Partners. And Doug really must be considered a master when it comes to investing in SaaS and mobile SaaS, with him his investments bringing in a cool $500 million in revenue alone in 2015, having funded the likes of Op- Optimizely, Flurry, and Marketo, just to name a few. But before we dive into the show today with Doug, would you like the chance to win a signed copy of Jason Lampkin's new book, How Hypergrowth Companies Create Predictable Revenue? Then all you need to do is leave a review on iTunes and tweet at Harry Stebbings and at Jason LK, the name that you left the review under on iTunes, for your chance to win. But without further ado, it's time to meet the man behind this staggering portfolio. So I'm delighted to introduce Doug Pepper, partner at Shasta Ventures. Doug, thank you so much for joining us on the official SASTA podcast today. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Now, I'd love to get the ball rolling today with a little background on you and, and how you made your way into the wonderful world of venture. I got into venture in a way that at one time was quite traditional, uh, but today is, is very unusual. And that is that I joined uh, InterWest uh, right after business school. I was 26 years old, uh, no computer science background or operating experience. Today, that's actually quite unusual. Uh, I learned the venture business by being an apprentice and really by doing it. Today, most people are joining after operating roles and after having technical or product roles. So in some sense, my entry into the business was quite unusual. Uh, I started my career uh, back in the mid-90s at Goldman Sachs in New York, and my job was taking a lot of technology companies public. And as you know, many of those companies were from the West Coast. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest. I had this sense that a lot of really interesting things happened with young companies before they made it to New York to go public. And so I decided to attend Stanford Business School to learn more about startups. And I really fell in love with startups during that time. It was 98 to 2000, which was obviously the height of the bubble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at Stanford, I learned about venture capital and decided that for me, my analytical background at, at Goldman Sachs, my interest in startups was really perfectly married in venture capital. And so that's why I decided to join right after business school uh, into the venture world and was lucky to join Interwest at that time. And you have some insane success with marketing technology in the past. So how do you evaluate the current state of marketing technology in the, in the SaaS space? I have spent a lot of time over the last 10 years investing in marketing technology. I've invested in at least a dozen companies in the broad segment of marketing, sales, customer success, uh, really the entire ecosystem of enterprise companies that helps businesses to get closer and improve their relationships with customers. I've done that because I think it's a very exciting area. My overall conclusion is that businesses and enterprises will never stop exploring new ways and better ways to optimize their relationships with customers. It's too important. It's the core of their business. Despite great progress, there's always more to be done and there's always new technologies to help them get better and in the end, compete better against 
their competition. I believe strongly in the category and I continue to see great innovation. Clearly today, though, it is overcrowded. Uh, when I invested in Marketo back in 2006, there literally was no Loom Escape. Most people believe that you couldn't back a marketing technology company and see success. And obviously today there's over 2,000 companies uh, that are in the area. Uh, so it is uh, quite crowded, um, but in the end, most sectors are today. Mm -hmm. And does, does the crowded nature of the sector mean the valuations are swelling? It, it has. I'm not sure it's because there's a lot of companies, but in general, in our, our current environment, the valuations have been going up dramatically, especially in the private markets, by the way, which have been quite disconnected from the public markets. But yes, there's been a proliferation in terms of the number of companies, uh, but also the valuations as well. The main concern I have about the number of companies, quite frankly, is that it's confusing and overwhelming to the buyers. If you're a CMO today or a VP of demand gen, your phone is literally ringing off the hook with different solutions that you need to evaluate. So, so how can startups effectively communicate with those key decision makers at big corporate enterprise companies uh, on using their products? How can they effectively reach out to them in the sea of options, do you think? I think the important uh, takeaway that I've learned for startups to identify a very clear problem and solve that problem with a simple and easy to use product that solves that problem in a, in a very efficient and quick manner. And what you would then end up with is a quick ROI for the customer and a very simple uh, product to communicate to them. And so I think the way to, to build a business is to solve a problem that's well-defined, generate a lot of customer demand for that, and that earns you the right then to become a larger platform. And you said about selling to those key decision makers there and how difficult it is. What do you make then of Slack's uh, growth and go-to-market strategy being a grassroots one where they, where they really infiltrated these big enterprises from, from the lower level? What do you make of that, and do you see a prominence of that in today's SaaS market? Absolutely. Uh, there's always been... Uh, multiple ways to attack the enterprise. And, you know, I've had success in my portfolio with both models. One is, you know, top-down enterprise selling, typically higher ACV, uh, slightly more complicated products uh, that require a group of people within the enterprise to make a decision. And there's been a number of companies, including Marketo and Eloqua and Workday and lots of others uh, that have grown up by selling in a traditional enterprise model. Uh, there are a number of other companies, and you mentioned Slack. Uh, one of the companies that uh, I've been fortunate enough to be involved with as well is Optimizely have grown much more from the bottoms up. And what I mean by that is really every employee at an enterprise today is also a consumer, and they're a consumer of technology. And uh, with today's connected world, they are learning about and finding interesting solutions that solve problems for their everyday life in their work environment. Slack, obviously, communication, optimizely for marketers uh, doing A-B testing. Those products are very simple to use, very easy to adopt and pay for. They can very quickly reach critical mass within the enterprise. And it's a wonderful way uh, to efficiently grow uh, an enterprise SaaS business. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. And is the fact that every enterprise employee is a consumer, is that one of the main drivers for future opportunities in the enterprise space? Or what are the other opportunities, do you think? Or do you think that is the dominant one? I think it's a huge one. Certainly, 
the bar has gone up in terms of usability more than ever before because we as consumers are used to uh, very simple to use products and they're demanding that for their enterprise tools as well. I think one of the biggest components of that is mobile. Most enterprise employees also spend the majority of their time on mobile devices today. Those mobile applications need to be very easy to use just like their consumer applications are. And so there's a whole wave of new companies being created that are responding to this new use case of enterprise employees spending their time on their mobile devices. And I think that's just a giant opportunity uh, for enterprise software companies today. I'd say the other big opportunity, if you ask me today, what's, what's interesting is really the opportunity around data. If I think about the amount of data being created by companies like Marketo and Salesforce, and you marry that with new, new big data technologies, the amount of data that can be collected, that can be analyzed is much more deep and much more quick than ever before. And that's leading to new applications around predictive uh, intelligence, artificial intelligence, better automation, uh, like never before, not only for the marketer, but for sales, for customer success across the enterprise. And when assessing future opportunities, do you take very much a macro view and look at the entirety of the market and see, you know, mobile is a massively swelling sector and then drill down into how that affects enterprise software? Or do you very much focus on specific niche categories first and then work out from there? How does your assessment process look like? It's a great question. Again, I think uh, VCs are successful with different models. My personal belief is that you need to do both in this business. So what I've always done is map out specific markets that I'm very interested in. So in the past, I would have decided I want to look at all the social marketing companies or content marketing. And in the past, marketing automation before I invested in Marketo. Map those markets, understand and learn about all the competitors and find the player that I think is going to be the winner. And that's how I chose Marketo. Uh, and a number of other companies that I've invested in over the years. I would call that you know, very strategic and thesis-driven investing. I think it's also very important for investors to be able to react to the opportunistic investment that comes through the door. In other words, there are many, many very smart entrepreneurs and technologists out there dreaming up amazing ideas that we could never think of. And venture capitalists need to be organized to react to those very quickly and, and make investments. And so to me, it's really a combination of that thesis-driven investing style as well as opportunistic investing style that works well for me. And you mentioned that the startups themselves. Talking of the startups and, and the, the offer that they provide, I'm always fascinated by, by one element in, in the space, and it's the dichotomy between those that believe in the future being an unbundling versus those that believe in the consolidation. Where do you lie on this? Do you think we will live in an unbundled software-driven world, or will we live in kind of a monopolic, if that's a word, uh, you know, a dominant by few consolidated environment? What are your thoughts on this? Well, so my job as a venture capitalist is to believe in best of breed. Uh, and I do, right? I mean, I think more than ever, buyers have been trained to buy the very best solutions, whether that comes from a large company or a small company. And I think the beauty of the environment that we're in today is that with SaaS, 
with APIs, with easier integration and transfer of data, it's much easier now to use a large product like Salesforce.com or Marketo, but then plug in best of breed new technology solutions on top of those existing systems. I mean, it used to be that you couldn't get fired uh, for buying IBM. I think today it's the opposite. I think you get fired for using, for buying a product that is very hard to use, that doesn't work very well. And again, back to the fact that everybody's really a consumer. They're looking for the best solutions, and those often come from startups. Now, will there be consolidation? Of course, there always will be, especially as large players struggle to innovate, and they need to grow by acquiring innovative startups. Uh, But again, that's good for venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. And before we dive into the 60-second SASTA, which is a 60-second quickfire round, on the theme of consolidation, I'd love to discuss the the transition from private to private mergers. And you funded the merger of Flurry Analytics with with Pinch Media, creating a real standard in the mobile analytics space. Uh, However, many believe that such mergers are doomed to failure. Why do you think that you take this contrarian view against that? Most people are right. The normal private-to-private merger is very challenging. And it's mainly because of integration challenges, especially around culture and organizational behavior. But I do think there are situations where private-to-private mergers can be very successful, if not totally game-changing. And you mentioned Flurry and Pinch Media back in 2009, Right at the beginning of the growth of the app stores on mobile, I was looking at mobile analytics and looked at both Flurry and Pinch. They were basically equal size and competing so hard against each other that they were actually hurting each other. And when the opportunity came to lead the financing to put those two companies together, I jumped at the chance because I saw the opportunity to build what you said, which was really the standard. Once that acquisition and that merger happened, the slope of the line changed dramatically and the combined company really exploded and became the go-to analytics platform for mobile. Uh, I've got another company, Spreadfast, uh, that just acquired a company in the space of social marketing called Shoutlet uh, that's going amazingly well. I think in today's environment where it's challenging to fundraise uh, for some companies, I think we're going to see more private-to-private mergers. And I think Uh, important to find the good ones, but those that work, I think will be very interesting. And then to give you a little bit of a breathing time, we're going to dive into a 60 second Sasta, which is where I have some rapid fire questions and then you hit me with your immediate thoughts. Sounds great. So we identified mobile as an exciting area, but what do you want to see more of in SaaS? For me, it's always easier to use products. The dream and the promise of SaaS was always to eliminate shelfware. And to some extent, we've done that, but there still are products out there that are too hard to use and therefore aren't used enough. I'm looking for better, more and better, uh, easier to use products in SaaS, especially in mobile. And then the biggest piece of advice to SaaS founders? Find a very specific critical problem to solve and solve it with a simple and easy to use product. If you get lots of happy customers, then you've earned the right to build a big platform. And then what's been the most uh, scary moment of your career as a VC, be it with a portfolio company, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) Lots of of scary moments, but uh, actually you referred to the company already. Uh, It was the moment that Steve Jobs called the CEO of Flurry Analytics 
and told him that he was shutting the company off of the iOS platform. Uh, that was a terrifying moment. Thankfully, in the end, the developers prevented that from happening because they love Flurry so much. Uh, but there were scary moments uh, during that time. God, that's a that's a worrying time as an investor. <laughs> it sure is. And and then, what is the hardest role to fill in SaaS companies? Do you think we mentioned there the internal structure a bit beforehand? But what do you think is the hardest role to fill? In my experience, as VP of product, if you're looking for a VP of product within an existing company, that means by definition you don't have that product visionary and finding that from the outside and plugging into the existing uh, technology and engineering group and product team within a startup is, is quite hard. Not impossible, but challenging. Mm-hmm. And then what's the most common problem your portfolios come to you with? Hiring, scaling, strategic, uh, go-to-market strategies? What, what's it for you? Uh, well, ironically, if you had asked me in the last two years, I would have said hiring. And today, my prediction is that starting from now until the foreseeable future, it's going to be fundraising. Mm-hmm. And then we get, we're going to dive into some more kind of long form questions. So, so many VCs today in the space have spoken to suggest that it's unique as a space, as it's much more quantifiable as to metrics to determine whether a startup is investable or not. Do you, do you go purely on this metric driven approach? Uh, if so, what sort of metrics do you particularly hone in on? I don't. I, I invest early enough that often you don't have metrics only to rely on. Uh, when I invested in Marketo, it was just an idea. Uh, there were no metrics. And when I invested in Flurry, there was zero revenue. Uh, so often metrics are not uh, able to be relied on. Uh, for me, I start with team, product, market. And if there are customers, to me, more than anything else, I want to hear from customers and understand the problems that they're having that drove them to adopt a solution. And in the case of a startup, you know, how is that solution working for them? Uh, why did they choose one competitor over another? Uh, to me, those are the most interesting things that I look at. But of course, metrics matter. In the end, for me, it's, it's the improvement, it's the trajectory of those metrics that matter more than the actual critical mass of those numbers. Mm-hmm. And and then talking about kind of the internal burn rate of a startup and a SaaS startup in particular, is there a particular levels that concern you when scaling up a business? Is there any signs that things might not be going to plan? Absolutely. Uh, And burn rate is going to be a a discussion that everybody is having here in the coming months. Uh, And by the way, we're seeing lots of companies today already doing proactive layoffs and proactive reductions in burns not because they're running out of money, but simply because they see the current environment coming and they want to proactively extend the runway. So burn rates are really at the center of the conversation around the board table today. To me, there's no hard and fast rules. Burn rate relates to the size of the company, the amount of traction in new bookings, salesperson productivity. And if productivity is high, you're more comfortable with a higher burn rate. And also if there's a very, very long runway, then you're also more comfortable with burn rate. But there are some general uh, guidelines that I look at. For a company that's post-Series A but pre-Series B, if they're approaching or going over $500,000 a month in burn, I start to get nervous. And for a company that's raised a Series B but has not yet raised a Series C, if they're at a million-dollar burn rate, I think you're going to find a bunch of really nervous investors. And those burn rate numbers 
that people are comfortable with are going down dramatically right now. Uh, I have companies that are raising money right now that have burn rates that six to nine months ago, investors would have been completely comfortable with. And today, that same burn rate is raising lots of yellow flags from potential investors. And then thinking of burn rates and, and runway there, because at the end of the day, you know, burn rate always kind of uh, comes down to runway and how much runway is left. How much um, funding and runway do you think startups and founders should account for when raising a fund? A lot of people say 18 months. Is that the same for seed stage SaaS companies? How does, how does it differ or does it not? Uh, I think that the rule of 18 months has been pretty well well believed in the last few years. And I think that rule is now changing and people are going to be asking for 24 months of runway. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just in the last six months, I think that that change is happening. And the reason for that is just simply it's going to be harder to raise the next round and it'll be important to have buffer um, because fundraising is going to take longer. And what metrics do you think are required to get to the next round? Are there any quantifiable metrics? You need you need X percent growth, you need X percent traction. What is it for you? For me to raise a Series A, I think you need a stable of, of really interesting customers. Obviously, if you're one of the top-down, kind of more traditional enterprise companies, maybe you have a, a dozen customers uh, or more. And if you're one of the bottoms-up companies, you, you probably now have dozens or hundreds of customers. Uh, that have adopted. But in general, I think to raise a traditional Series A today, I think you need somewhere between 50 and 150K of MRR. Obviously, there are Series A companies with a lot more than that that are getting higher valuations. But I think to get a traditional Series A investor interested, you need on that order of magnitude of, of MRR. I think for Series B, you need to show consistent growth, uh, month-over-month growth and that there's a repeatable sales model that is being put in place. And typically companies at that level, I think, are in the kind of three hundred to $500,000 of MRR uh, at that Series B stage. Of course, there's examples of companies with much more than that, but, but I think that's kind of the minimum bar that, that investors are looking for right now. Finally, ending the, the interview and, and discussing the future and the plans for the future with Shasta, what, what's the most exciting you then at the moment and what are your plans for the coming years with Shasta the new role what's what's in store yeah I'm, I'm really excited about joining Shasta it's a wonderful platform uh, and fit really exactly with what I was looking for I wanted to join a firm that is laser focused on technology only and that has a phenomenal software practice and Shasta has both of those characteristics uh, the other thing that was important for me was joining a smaller platform uh, where a set of partners can sit around a small table and make very quick decisions. And it really feels like a team. Uh, and finally, just a great culture. These guys have phenomenal uh, entrepreneur references as being excellent partners to them. And that was so important to me. So for me, I'll just end at a high level, which is, you know, my plan is to continue working with great entrepreneurs, helping them, if I can, to build great companies behind big ideas. And my goal is always to be uh, known as a great partner to them in good times and in bad. And working uh, with entrepreneurs that are, that are fearless and building phenomenal companies is really a privilege for me. And uh, I'm really excited that I've been able to join Shasta and continue to do that, hopefully for the next 
15 or 20 years. Well, Doug, it's been absolutely fantastic to hear your story and so inspiring to hear the genuine excitement and enthusiasm you have for the space and for, for incredible entrepreneurs. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Uh, thanks a lot. It's been fun. And a huge hand to Doug for giving up his time today to appear on the show and a massive congratulations for him to the recent move to Shasta. We look very forward to seeing that prosper and develop. And do not forget, if you would like the chance to win a signed copy of Jason's incredible new book, How Hypergrowth Companies Create Predictable Revenue, then all you need to do is leave a review on iTunes and then tweet us at Harry Stebbings and at Jason LK with the name that you left the review under on iTunes and you will be submitted into the competition for the chance to win a signed copy of Jason's book and if you're loving the show also do subscribe to the show on iTunes we would be so grateful and it makes such a big difference and we look so forward to bringing you next week's episode thanks so much for tuning in we really appreciate it